this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 7 of the DNA season, Just Science interviews Molly Hall, an examiner for the United States Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory, about their transition to a direct-to-DNA approach to processing sexual assault kits. The United States Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory acts as the true crime lab for the entire Department of Defense and serves all branches of the military. With roughly 2,000 sexual assault kits being submitted per year, they needed to find a way to efficiently process these kits without being bogged down by screening or an influx in submissions. Listen along as Molly discusses sexual assault kit processing and why their lab made the switch to a direct-to-DNA approach in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a project of the National Institute of Justice. And today we are at the International Association for Identification meeting. We're very fortunate this week to have with us Molly Hall, who actually is the chair of the DNA Forensic Biology Subcommittee of the IAI and is also uh, an examiner for the United States Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory, USACIL. From now on, we'll be using the acronym. She's been at USACIL since 2004, was originally a latent print examiner, and in the last few years has uh, moved over to the DNA unit. She actually has a Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Science and a Master's in Forensics from the University of Florida. As somebody who's been on both the latent print side and the DNA side, I think that actually is unique. There used to be a lot of time when more people crossed disciplines. That's more unusual today. So we're going to learn an awful lot today from Molly Hall from USACEL. Thank you very much. So USACEL is basically the crime laboratory for DOD. You all are doing forensic casework involving crimes that involve the uh, soldiers across the Department of Defense. Yes, that is correct. Even though we are considered USACIL, United States Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory, we do service all branches of the military. So from that perspective, you're not that different in terms of the conversation we're going to have today from one of the public crime laboratories out in the state and local area. Not very different. Of course, we do service specific individuals, just like local and state laboratories do. And our population is a little bit different from civilians. But as far as a crime lab goes, we do process evidence and uh, do all of our daily tasks, just like a local or a state crime laboratory would do theirs. Just like anywhere else, there's going to be sexual assault work to be done by use of cell. That's just part of the unfortunate world that we live in. Yes, sir. What's basically is your caseload you're talking about here? Our caseload uh, actually has dropped a little bit in the last couple of years, but I would say that we probably hit about 2,000 cases, maybe a give or take a couple hundred plus or minus 2,000. So pretty substantial flow that you're having through USACEL. And I assume also traditionally, uh, during the 2000s, for example, you were doing fairly traditional screening using acid phosphatase or P30 or something like that. Yes, sir. What was the intent for you all behind those uh, screenings? 
in order for us to determine which type of samples that we needed to focus in on and try to detect a DNA profile on, we would use these screening techniques on the front end so we would not have to do this time-consuming process on the back end to get our DNA profiles. So we would screen all of these items of evidence and then from that determine which samples or which items of evidence we would put forward for the DNA profiles. So were you all doing AP on all your casework at one time? Or? We would do AP, P30, and micro, yes. Oh, okay. And would that determine then what went on, or were there other steps that allowed you to determine what went on then to actual uh, extraction and processing? Well, it was kind of funny a little bit back then. It was kind of a wide range across the board of what examiners would decide to do. Per protocol, we would do AP testing, P30 testing, micro testing, and if you had positive results on AP and P30 combined, or a positive micro result, or even simply just a P30 positive result, which for our laboratory was not semen positive, but it was indicative of semen, um, we would have to take all of those samples forward. That was per protocol. Well, when some of these samples were negative, we were allowed to, as examiners, take these uh, samples forward and put them forward for DNA analysis. So it was uh, across our branch itself not um, standardized. Mm -hmm. And this caused us problems when we were doing technical and administrative reviews. It would cause a lot of discussion as to why something was taken forward for analysis and why something else was not taken forward. So it just, it had an, an issue where we were kind of, uh, I would say, just all across the board and we needed to be standardized. Sure. So did you all have concerns that the AP test, as well as uh, the prostate-specific antigen tests, were not necessarily as accurate as we would like? And, and the difference between when there was a male fraction versus when there wasn't was a very small percentage. Basically, as a, as a uh, discriminator, which the screening technology really should be a good discriminator, those really aren't that great in terms of what they saw in their casework. And that's exactly right. We have examiners that are coming from uh, different backgrounds and different laboratories coming to work at our laboratory, all very, very well-trained individuals, but they have a lot of experience. And I would say that uh, a majority of them saw and had experience that maybe the AP test was not as good of an indicator to them. And the P30 test maybe not so much. Uh, they did rely a little bit on the P30 test, but then again, you do get weak results with a P30 test and weak results with an AP, and then you just automatically would need to take that forward and possibly not get a DNA profile. On the flip side, some of our examiners were getting AP negative results and very, very weak P30 or no P30 test result at all, taking that sample forward and getting a DNA profile. So just across the board, people were not putting 110% faith into these screening tests that they should be able to put, put faith in. And I think it's been difficult for a long time for crime laboratories in this area because, you know, there's only so much capacity, right? You know, there at one time was a lot of prioritization around consent cases. And until everyone realized, well, gosh, a lot of these consent cases are linking across the board, you know, I mean, it, it may seem like a simple consent case up front, but it really isn't so simple oftentimes. So you can't prioritize on that. Don't, no. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> and we do right. not recommend prioritizing <laughs> on that. Okay, now we've got the screening tests, and it doesn't seem like those are a good way to prioritize. So, so I, I suppose at this point, you all looking at this, 
and seeing that we would like to do a broader array but still not be able to bog down with those 2,000 cases and still be able to efficiently process them, yes. needed to find a way to do that. So how did you all look at that problem in terms of figuring out maybe the prioritization isn't the right word, but making it more efficient so you could still get your casework going, but also find a way to do them in an efficient way within the resources you had? That's right. Um, We do prioritize our cases at the Army Crime Lab, but it's not specific to one branch over another or anything like that or what the actual fence is over the other. Most cases are routine cases, and in the past, when evidence showed up in our door, that's when we realized we had a case from a specific branch of the military at a specific location. Now, there are certain things that we do for our laboratory, laboratory laboratory-wide, that has changed the way that we receive evidence that has decreased our turnaround times dramatically. So one thing is, even at the limbs level, you're tracking things differently. Yes, we are. So in the past, what would happen is the mail would be received by our evidence processing branch, and they would simply input the container into our limb system. And then the first examiner would receive that entire box of the evidence, the entire container, and that individual, that examiner, was taking the time to do a triage of the evidence and then parsing it out to the different branches that we have, the different forensic disciplines that we have in our laboratory. And of course, that takes a lot of time. Plus, you have to make a lot of phone calls to your agents to get clarification on things or to write memorandums if the chain of custody is incorrect and ask additional questions because maybe you don't have enough information on the case in order to fully help an investigator do what he needs to do to solve this crime. So all of that now has been taken over by what we call the case management branch. And what the case management branch is made up of primarily are forensic analysts from our laboratory that know how our system works and they've all come together and they basically take over the triage of all of that evidence for us and our evidence processing branch does a very good job of breaking down that evidence and then sending it to the different forensic disciplines. So now as an analyst, the only thing that I get is basically a final package of my evidence and a nice, neat, tidy little package of what I need to test and why. And for obvious reasons, that increases your efficiency enormously. At that point, you can basically put all the resources on it from your perspective necessary to be able to get it done. Exactly. Now the examiner can focus on the evidence and focus on working the case instead of having to muddle through and try to take maybe a day to sort out what they're going to do and try to make contact with these agents. Our militaries all over the world, if we have a case that's coming out of Korea or Japan or something, we can't just pick up the phone and call people. So how do the agents feel about it? I mean, are they happy to have to It takes a little more work on the front end from them. It does take a little bit more work on the front end for them. I think there was a transition period, of course, from the agents that I knew and the investigators I knew. There was a transition period, but now I'm hearing some really good feedback on the fact that we have decreased our turnaround times. And, of course, that's the overall end goal is to get great quality product out to our our customers in a very timely fashion because you just don't want these things sitting around waiting on answers. Sure. And I don't want to mislead folks in terms of the AP tests or the other other things. You all still do those in certain circumstances and to get certain kinds of information. It's just the thinking behind it that is a little differently. In the DNA branch itself, now we're focusing down a little bit more, not just lab-wide, down to the DNA branch. We have changed the way we do testing on the evidence. So in the past, we would get all of our evidence and what was 
talk specifically about sexual assault kits and the fact that we get mostly swabs in our kits. Sometimes we do get underwear. For that particular type of evidence, what we used to do was we used to test every item of evidence with the AP test, the P30 test, and do a micro test. So there were three exams being done on all of these swabs before we even made a decision as to what we were going to take forward for DNA extraction. Per protocol, if something tested positive for semen or an indication of semen, if it was just P30 positive test, then we would take that forward for DNA extraction, every sample. Well, what that caused was at the end process when we had our profiles is we had redundancy in our results and our reports were extremely long and sometimes very confusing because every time you had a result you were giving out a likelihood ratio or a random match probability. So you're giving all these numbers for all of these different samples and a lot of times it was the exact same result coming from one kit. Mm -hmm. And that, of course that takes a lot of time because now you have a second person doing your technical review and basically have to rework the evidence all over again. So they're doing the same thing, looking at the profiles just like the initial examiner did, taking their time with all of these comparisons and um, analyzing everything, which just takes an overabundance of time. Cool. That was the old way of doing things. The new way of doing things seems to have decreased the turnaround times tremendously. So the new way of doing things is we have implemented a standardized process of analyzing the different samples in a, a sexual assault kit taking rounds of the sexual assault kit. For instance, uh, we will do internal swabs, vaginal cervical for a female victim first, depending on the post-assault interval time frame. That might be round one. During the extraction phase, we do a F2 screening, our, our micro screening test in the extraction. Mm -hmm. We can look at the slide at that point or we can wait till the end when we've seen a DNA profile. But at that point, when you're doing the micro screening at the F2, you can determine whether or not you have sperm, and that would be a sperm-positive sample, a semen-positive sample. At the quantitation step after extraction, that's when we can see whether or not we have enough male DNA sure. in that. If you have a case coming in, and you're going to, I assume you have multiple swabs. Yes. So you wouldn't necessarily extract all of the swabs? That's correct. Would you definitely extract at least one? Oh, definitely, yes. Okay, so you are doing an all, basically all case extraction. Every case extraction, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few cases that will come actually through the case management branch when they are doing the front end, there are very few cases that get turned away on sexual assault cases. Right. Now, are you all recent to the robotics being able to help you with the extraction, or is that something that is that you all had already established? Well, uh, I've been in the DNA branch for three and a half years, and I believe they were fairly new at the time that I came on board. So our branch may, be, may have been using them for about four and a half to five years. Now, do you all feel like you would have been able to go down this path before you implemented that? I mean, that's an interesting question because a lot of labs don't have that capability. Correct. Uh, you could implement this type of uh, testing on sexual assault kits and definitely decrease your turnaround time. That is just one portion of it, but robotics is very key as well. Automation sure. and robotics is very key to, to decrease your turnaround times, yes. Sure. sure. And I guess the limbs is as well in the sense that, you know, this whole approach, you know, kind of revolves around having a limbs that is able to do the tracking of the sort that you're talking about. Exactly. The limb system as well, uh, as well as having a standardized 
format on how you process your sexual assault kits. For instance, if uh, the post-assault interval is greater than 72 hours, we will take the cervical swabs, the vaginal cervical swabs, and the underwear because mm -hmm. that is where you're going to get most of your information is underwear. And so you would essentially, on your initial round of testing, not do any of the intimate swabs that were not internal. You would do those on your second round if you did not receive any results from your first round. Whereas in the past, we would have done everything. Now, on some of those older samples, are you doing any Y analysis as well? Or is that, uh, what time might you do YSTR stuff? We will do the YSTR based on our quant results. But yes, it typically is on an internal swab. It's going to be the later time frame of the post-assault interval when you expect to have to do a Y analysis. Mm -hmm. But that's based on several different criteria, it sounds like. You're looking at both the quant and the time and maybe other factors as well. Like maybe if you're not getting a result using more traditional kit. Right. And another thing about that is, is once we do a YSTR analysis on an item of evidence and we come up with a very uh, partial profile that does not give a good stat, then we may have to go back and go into the kit again and go through other samples to see if we can get more information. I see. So what's the impact on your turnaround time then and on your efficiency? Is it also being is also allowing the staff to be able to do more, more cases than they might have otherwise per analyst or how much impact is it having there? Actually, I think that, um, yes, we are being able to do more cases. We're being able to analyze more cases and our examiners are being allowed to do more extracurricular tasks, such as being part of the case management branch. Mm -hmm. So you have now possibly given some time over to other analysts who want to do some research with the robotics and with the automation and with the way that we do our processing of our sexual assault kits. Because each examiner can take on a couple of more cases, we are allowing those other individuals to do extra outside activity. You're giving a talk here at IAI concerning all of this, and I assume that you know, some of this boils down to some kind of recommendations, because there's what USACIL has done, right? Yes. And that works for you. Yes. And, you know, in terms of speaking more broadly to the, to the forensic community, what do you think is, are the real implications here, the recommendations from your perspective about that folks can, can have a takeaway on? I think the takeaway would be that in the past, examiners have had to think about so many different factors, especially DNA analysts have had to think about so many factors of a case mm -hmm. from when they receive the evidence and having to sort through everything and trying to get the game plan to get the best evidence out as timely as they could. First and foremost, getting the information to the examiner so they have more time to spend on cases. If that can be wrapped up in a neat little bow, that would be a blessing. Secondly, implementing a standardized way of actually analyzing the sexual assault kits or the additional evidence for the sexual assault, there needs to be some type of standardized way that your entire unit will process the kit the same way. Mm -hmm. So if examiner A gets the kit and a week later examiner B gets the exact same kit, you would have seen the exact same process as being done. This assists with the flow, it assists with the review, it just makes everything streamlined and much faster. And number three, there's a definite need for robotics or automation within mm -hmm. the DNA laboratory. I know it's a cost constraint because it's very expensive to do, but it really does help with the time that examiners are having to spend doing a manual function, sure. whereas they can do what they need to do, place a sample in a, an instrumentation, 
press a few buttons and let it do, say, the extraction or the quant or the, of course, the amplification and the CE. But that really does decrease the turnaround times. And on top of it, the last thing is what we have implemented at UCICIL is uh, we have a team of technicians. And we actually plan on having at least one or two more technicians come on board. But those technicians are the ones who are running all of the robotics for us, which once again gives the case examiner more time to focus on more cases. So overall, it was, it was a collective teamwork approach from mm -hmm. the laboratory as a whole down to our DNA branch, down to each individual examiner, and it's done wonders for our turnaround time. I believe that our turnaround time for uh, DNA maybe five years ago was around four months. Today, it's around two months, 60 days. Sure. Now, we're very big on economic analysis. Uh, you know, we uh, work with West Virginia University on Foresight and uh, looking at kind of the economics of doing a crime laboratory. And I, th I, th I think that there's a couple of aspects here that are interesting because, you know, the choice to make to do the robotics or not, I know it's expensive, yes. But uh, on the other hand, once you've accepted that the screening techniques may be cause you not to really have the impact that you should be having. You know what I mean? Yes. And also that maybe you're not necessarily getting case flow uh, as efficient as it could be. The trade-off for a laboratory that has a significant number of cases, right? I mean, you're a 2,000, you know, uh, is probably pretty good on robotics, probably better than they realize on robotics if they actually were able to sit down and, and do some of the, the business case analysis. Yes. Yeah, and that's certainly the case for you all. Once you've decided you have to do it a particular way, if you didn't have the robotics, the, the personnel costs would be way more than the robotics <laughs> And cost. That's exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly right. Yeah. So, so uh, one last question, and that is because we're at IEI. I know you're talking DNA, but you're also a latent print person. I mean, do you think there were some things that you took with you from the latent print world and applied them in the DNA world that kind of gave you some insights here that made, made it easier for you? I Absolutely. Don't know. I spent a little over 10 years mainly working latent print cases. It's where I learned, gathered all of my knowledge for forensics. And moving over to the DNA branch, what happened was is that I started seeing how different disciplines work together, how they fit together, and it gave me the broader perspective of what a crime scene might actually look like and what mm. I'm, I wasn't so uh, tunnel visioned. Yes, it's been a wonderful experience, and if anybody has the opportunity to do dual disciplines, I would definitely say that that's what they need to do. It's just been a great experience. Well, we, you know, we have uh, some of our regular guests uh, like John Vanderkolk and Robert Thompson. They come from a time, an older time, mm -hmm. <laughs> when uh, that was much more common. And uh, I think it's great, and I think it, you're right. It does. Uh, we're very ecumenical here at Just Science, in the sense we we love all the disciplines. <laughs> so that's a, it's a very very good message for us to to have. So Molly, thank you so much for being on Just Science with us today. Thank you. I urge all the listeners, please give us lots of stars, five stars, and thumbs up and ratings on uh, SoundCloud and Stitcher and iTunes, and uh, make sure to tell all your friends and colleagues to uh, download an episode of Just Science and, and learn more about the, the, uh, what their colleagues are doing, what our colleagues are doing to improve the practice of forensic science uh, using research-based methods and, and learning from each other about best practices. Uh, thank you very much for listening in today. 
Next week, Just Science interviews Jayanne Sepich about Katie's Law and policy regarding lawfully owed DNA. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.